All right. You ready? All right. Romans 3, uh, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now... We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would instruct us this day, and um, having heard your word, we pray as well that you would um, allow us to respond to your word in ways that are appropriate. This we pray in Jesus' name. So they say that repetition is the key to learning, and for the past eight weeks we have been working through this opening section of the book of Romans, and each week the message has been the same. None is righteous, no, not one. Probably by now we have Paul's point down pat. But let's remember how it is that we got here. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a kind of universal, global statement. Almighty God from on high, from His throne in heaven, will reveal His wrath against the ungodliness of all people. Justice will be done. Evil will be repaid. And as we're reading that, we might be thinking to ourselves, bring it on, God. Unleash your wrath against these unrighteous people. All of us have prime candidates in mind on whom we think God should loose a lightning bolt or two. All of us can think of people who are so awful or wicked or cruel or mean or unjust that we wish the day of God's judgment would come to set things right, to punish evildoers, and to avenge the victims. A friend of mine is in Rwanda right now, and by the magic of the internet and Facebook, I saw a picture of her having her feet massaged by a local woman on the bank of a river. And as Facebook friends began to ask questions about the picture, what came out was that this woman massaging my friend's feet did this to make her living because she is mute. And she's mute because someone cut her tongue out during the Rwandan genocide. 
In the course of 100 days in 1994, more than 1 million Rwandans were killed in an attempt by the government to rid the country of two minority groups. Most of the murders were committed with machetes. In just three months, 400,000 children were orphaned. When we think of that kind of evil, whose author can really be no other than Satan himself, we might think, bring it on, God. Unleash your wrath against the unrighteous people. After Paul says that God's wrath is being displayed against all unrighteousness, he then begins to systematically detail who these unrighteous people are. And he goes through three categories of people. First, the godless pagans, and then the hypocritical Christians, and then, finally, the self-confident Jews, his own people. In Paul's mind, those three categories cover all of the human race. Paul began with the godless pagans, people that Paul says are literally God-forsaken, people so corrupt that God has given up on them and cut them loose to reap the consequences of their own sin. And maybe the readers of Paul's letter back there in Rome in the first century were thinking, bring it on, God, let the pagans have it. The lifestyle in Rome was so out of control that not only did Jews and Christians think that it was outrageous, but even the pagan writers of that time complained about the moral corruption of the city. This was, after all, a city where you could go to a public arena, a place like Lincoln Financial Field or a Citizens Bank Park. You could go there and you could buy a ticket. And you could take your seat and cheer with the crowd while you watched men, women, and children be killed by wild animals or by armed soldiers. Now think of that for a second. That was public entertainment. Rome, the pinnacle of civilization. Rome was the New York City or the Paris of the ancient world. The richest and the most powerful city on earth at that time. And yet it was so deeply evil and pervasively corrupt. Their wealth and their power were accompanied by no moral constraints. So why wouldn't the readers of Paul's letter say, bring it on, God. Unleash your wrath against these unrighteous people. But then Paul throws a curve. Because he turns the corner and he begins talking about the people that he's writing to. He begins talking about the Christians. And he says in chapter 2 verse 3, Do you suppose that you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to hypocritical Christians. Paul is talking to people who know right from wrong. To people who endorse with their lips at least God's holy standards. But the problem is they're not living out or living up to those standards that they hold. They say one thing but they do another. Now it is good to believe, to know that there's a difference between right and wrong. It's good to know what God says about how we should live our lives. But knowing right from wrong doesn't do us any good. If we don't live the way that we know that we should. I know that plenty of exercise and a low calorie diet will help me lose the weight I want to lose. 
But until I actually change the way I live, that knowledge doesn't count for much. At the beginning of this section of the book of Romans, Paul says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And then he talks about how unrighteous the pagans are. They're so unrighteous and they're in danger of God's wrath. And then he talks about the hypocritical Christians, people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk, and they are in no better shape. They too are in danger of God's wrath. And then finally he comes to his own people, to the Jews, to the self-confident Jews, people like himself, people like the Pharisees, the super Jews, of which he, Paul, was such a proud member. Now the Jews have a special relationship with God. They have the patriarchs, they have the covenants, they have the law, they have circumcision, they have so much going for them. And Paul asks in chapter 3, verse 10, which we read earlier this morning, are we Jews any better off? And he answers his own question by saying, no, not at all. The Jews are no better off than the God-forsaken pagans. The Jews are no better off than the hypocritical Christians. And so we reach the climax of this passage. The whole point of Paul's entire argument—the uh, whole point of Paul's entire argument, which we have spent about eight weeks now unpacking, beginning in Romans one eighteen through Romans three nine. Paul has one point in this entire passage, one point in this entire argument that none are righteous. No, not one. Now, it is really easy for us to see how other people might not be righteous. It's easy for us to spot the sins of other people, but Paul wants us to see that we are not righteous either. Paul wants us to see that we have as big a problem with sin as anyone else. And I don't want to let this point go, even if it seems like I'm beating a dead horse. Because this is the one point that Paul has been trying to make for the past eight weeks. And it's the one point on which the rest of the book of Romans will stand. And if we miss this point, we miss the gospel. None are righteous. No, not one. And still, every week, I deal with people in this church. People who come to my office. People who walk in off the street. People who are trying to convince me of how righteous they are. Oh, they know that their wife is unrighteous. They know that their husband is unrighteous. They know that their children are unrighteous. They know that their parents are unrighteous. They know that the world is unrighteous. But they just can't seem to come to grips with what the Bible teaches plain as day. Namely that they are unrighteous. Why is it so hard? Paul has been pounding this point for verse after verse. That none are righteous, no, not one. He's been pounding it for two chapters. For eight weeks we've been working through this section. And he keeps pounding because Paul knows how deceitful the human heart is. Because Paul knows that our reservoir of self-justifying excuses and reasons is limitless. Because Paul knows how we will keep talking to ourselves and talking to anyone who will listen to try to convince ourselves and to try to convince them that, you know what, I'm actually okay. 
I'm actually not so bad. I actually do a lot of good stuff. And I actually have some pretty good reasons for what I did. And anyway, I wasn't hurting anyone. And isn't God supposed to be a forgiving God? And who are you to judge me anyway? And it's not like I murdered someone. Well, if I did murder them, they deserved it. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so our lips just keep on flapping. They keep on flapping with excuses and self-justification. And so Paul keeps pounding this one point. None are righteous. No, not one. None are righteous. No, not one. None are righteous. Not even you. He keeps pounding this point because what God wants from us, we hear in verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped. God wants us to shut up. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, God wants us to shut up with the excuses. When God gives us the gift of an uneasy conscience and believe me not everyone has that some people's consciences are just stone cold dead when God gives us the gift of an uneasy conscience we need to shut up with the self justification because if we don't we're going to die now let me explain why I've been saying it week after week for eight weeks now That the gospel contains a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a prescription. If you go to the doctor and you won't listen to his diagnosis of your medical situation, you have no chance of getting better. If you go to the doctor and he says, you have a cancer in your body, this lump right here. That's the diagnosis. And if left untreated, it will kill you. That's the prognosis. So I recommend immediate surgery and chemotherapy. That's the prescription. If you go to the doctor and he says you have a cancer in your body, this lump right here, and you start flapping your lip with excuses and self-justification, well, you know, doctor, I eat well and I exercise. You know, doctor, I come from a long line of people who have never had cancer. You know, doctor, there's a guy where I work, he's got a lump much worse than my lump. And you know, doctor, I may have this one lump here, but I'm smooth everywhere else. If you go to the doctor and start flapping your lips with excuses and self-justifications, when he gives you your diagnosis, you are going to die. And the death that we will die because of untreated sin is infinitely worse than any death that we would die from untreated cancer. The diagnosis of Scripture is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The diagnosis is unambiguous. None are righteous. No, not one. We need to hear and believe this diagnosis because it's the first step to being cured. After the diagnosis comes the prognosis. The description of what happens if we leave our problem untreated and the prognosis is the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. The prognosis is the wages of sin is death. And then finally, thanks be to God, 
There is a gospel prescription, God's solution to our problem, God's cure for our condition. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let me say it again. None are righteous, no, not one, not even you, and certainly not your pastor. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Romans 3.10 says none is righteous, no, not one. The combination of those two facts looks like really bad news. The apparent conclusion of those two facts seems to be everyone, including me, is in for a big dose of God's wrath. The combination of those two facts, one fact about who we are and one fact about who holy God is, the combination of those two facts would crush us with hopelessness if it were not for the third fact, the fact of the gospel. Paul has already hinted at it. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, he'll unpack it more fully in the next few chapters of Romans that we're going to dig into in the weeks ahead. But in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he gives us just this hint. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In Romans 3.21, which we will get to in a couple of weeks, Paul will say the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What the gospel teaches, to give this to you in a thumbnail sketch, is that we can't be righteous by keeping the law. We've already failed. But there is another way. To acquire a righteousness that we need for salvation. A righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness that is from faith for faith. There are two kinds of righteousness that scripture talks about. The first kind of righteousness is a perfect obedience to God's law. If you keep God's law perfectly, you are righteous. And you will be saved from God's wrath. The only problem with that kind of righteousness is that only one person, Jesus Christ ever met that standard. All of us have already been disqualified for that kind of righteousness. So, thanks be to God, there is a second kind of righteousness. A righteousness that we acquire by faith in Jesus Christ. By union with Christ. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. Because it's not our own. But it is the righteousness of Christ applied to us, given to us by God's grace, which we receive... Through our faith, with the first kind of righteousness, we don't have a chance. But with the second kind of righteousness, we have great hope. Paul has taken so much time carefully indicting the whole world. Everyone from the nastiest pagan to the most pious Pharisee. He's taken so much time carefully indicting the whole world. Not because he's a big downer or a negative Nelly. But because he wants us to not be distracted by the kind of righteousness that we can't have anyway. Namely the righteousness of good works. The righteousness of the law. And thereby miss out on the kind of righteousness that we can have. 
Namely the alien righteousness that we acquire by union with Jesus Christ. The righteousness of faith. Next week here at HVPC, it's Mission Sunday. Jeff Pearson, who is the area director of Young Life, one of the missions that we support, will be uh, our guest preacher that morning. And I want to make sure that you're here to hear him preach. During the Sunday school hour, we will have a missions fair. A number of missionaries that we support will be here with uh, table displays and literatures, and you can talk with them about what they're doing and how you can be involved in their work in a hands-on way. There will also be, I understand, light refreshments that we can uh, enjoy uh, during the course of this missions fair. The following week, I think that's April 22nd, we're finally going to turn the corner into a new section of the book of Romans. The section that we have been working through since the beginning of this year has been tough. It's been gloomy, I warned you. It was like nine weeks of hellfire and damnation. It has been Paul's diagnosis of the human condition, and it's not a pretty picture. But every week, as we've been going through this gloomy section... We've been taking a little sneak peek ahead of what hope there is in the good news of the gospel. So this morning, as we wrap up this last section of the hard section, I don't want to close without, again, reminding us of the good news of the gospel. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Taken together, that is serious bad news. But that's not the end of the story. Because in Romans 5.8, the Bible says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 10.13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning, I want to invite you To call on the name of the Lord. I want to invite you to call on God and ask for His mercy. Be honest with God. He already knows everything about you anyway. But be honest with Him. Tell Him about what's going on in your life. Tell Him that you know that His law is holy and that you have failed to meet it. Tell Him that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that He died on a cross to atone for your sins. Thank Him for His love. Receive this gift of forgiveness and faith. Be united with Christ and then commit to living the rest of your life as a student of Jesus. For the promise of scripture is this, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and we thank you for your hard word to us today. Lord, we pray that we would hear this word and receive it as a true diagnosis of our condition. And Lord, I pray that we would respond to your call to trust in your righteousness rather than our own. To turn away from our own imagined goodness and instead embrace the perfect righteousness of Christ. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, seal to us the faith that we need so that we might cling to Christ, 
our only hope. Amen.